We are a generation raised by government. Is more government really what we need? So I took a classic Fight Club line and changed it up a little bit, so sue me. But I really get tired of other people wanting to take my money and spend it on things we just do not need. And the government making decisions that end up just costing us in the long run. And by us, I mean the end consumer. The past week, the New York Times published an opinion article titled, quote, We need a PBS for social media, end quote. I cannot tell you how wrong and how stupid of an idea this is. At the end of the day, all this is doing is expanding government, should it happen, redistributing money, should it happen, and taking more money from taxpayers to fund some government-controlled organization. But most importantly, it won't solve the problem the author says exists. On top of that, the next victim of the U.S. versus China tariff war are Apple's Mac Pro computers. What our fearless political leaders often fail to realize when it comes to economics is that at the end of the day, the consumers are always the ones who lose in these type of wars. Good afternoon, everybody from the racing capital of the World Speedway, Indiana. My name is Nick Sturgeon, your host. And thank you for listening to episode 63 of the Cyber.Now podcast, where we talk about tech, cybersecurity, politics, and policy. I appreciate you spending some of your day with me. So a couple weeks ago, I did a thing. I put out a call to all of those in Speedway, Indiana, who are running for local office. I made an offer to them to come on to this show so the people of Speedway could get to know them and be better informed come election day here in November. I reached out to the town press and they put my call out in the letters to editor section of the Speedway town press and to a couple different social media platforms. I've also reached out to a couple of candidates directly. So far, only one person has taken me up on that offer. This individual was one of those that I had not reached out to directly, so I'm really excited that he or she took up my invitation to come on the show, and I'm scheduled to meet with them on October 8th here in a little over a week. I'm also scheduled to be interviewed on a new podcast tomorrow morning where I get to talk about soccer and cybersecurity. Really excited about that interview. Now I want to take a little time out of the show to thank our show sponsor, Delta Research. I cannot thank them enough for their support. Again, I also want to thank all of you who are listening to this episode right now for taking time out of your day. Time is the one resource that we do not get back and are not guaranteed. I really appreciate you spending that valuable resource on this podcast. For those of you who are first-time listeners, thank you for tuning in. It is my goal to keep you coming back week in and week out. If you are a returning listener, your continued support is very much appreciated. Outside of listening, I ask only a couple simple things, and that's if you find this show's content valuable. Share the show with your network, subscribe, rate, review, and go sign up for the mailing list at cybernowpod.com for all the latest news, insights, and behind-the-scenes information. 
All right, jumping right into it. I know I was gone last week, had some personal things to take care of, but the New York Times published an opinion article last week calling for a PBS for social media. This article was written by Mark Cotney, who, by the description, is a former director of Tumblr. Now, go imagine that, that someone from a liberal company like Tumblr or some of these large internet-based companies wants more government. So, we'll just jump right into the article. It says, social media is an opportunity wrapped in a problem. YouTube spreads propaganda and is toxic to children. Twitter spreads propaganda is toxic to racial relations. Facebook spreads propaganda and is toxic to democracy itself. Such problems aren't aren't surprising when you consider that all these companies operate on the same basic model. Create a product that maximizes the attention you can command from a person. Collect as much data as you can about that person and sell it. Proposed solutions like breaking up companies and imposing regulations have been met with resistance. No joke. The platforms understandably worry about their profits might be reduced from staggering to merely amazing. And this may not be the best course of action anyway. Well, no joke. Who wants more regulation? What if the problem is something that can't be solved by existing for-profit media platforms? Maybe the answer to fixing social media isn't trying to change companies with business models built around products that hijack our attention instead of work to create a less and instead work to create a less toxic alternative. Nonprofit public media is part of the answer. More than 50 years ago, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Public Broadcasting Act committing federal funds to create public television and radio that would, quote, be responsive to the interest of the people. It isn't a big leap to expand public media to include not just television and radio, but also social media. In 2019, the definition of media is considerably larger than it was in 1967. Commentary on Twitter, memes on Instagram, performances on TikTok are all much a part of the media landscape today as newspapers and television news. Public media came out of a recognition that the broadcasting spectrum is a finite resource. TV broadcasters given licenses to use the spectrum were expected to provide programming like news and educational shows in return, but that was not enough to make sure that some of that finite resources would always be used in public interest. Congress established public media. Today, limited resources isn't the problem. It's our attention. In this environment, the loudest, scariest voices win because that's what works best on a commercially driven platform that's optimizing for engaging. It isn't always the scariest voices. I do think, and this is my commentary here real quick, is that even in the main media, the large media landscape, they use fear and they use the violence to drive their stories because they they know that's what sells. And there I do kind of agree that it isn't much of a leap to do that on a social media platform. And it's not because it's commercially driven. And I'll get into more of some of the what I think are fallacies of his opinion here. Trolls and abusive behaviors thrive on for-profit social media platforms. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. It's not that it's a for-profit social media platform. This would happen. This behavior 
would thrive on any social media platform, regardless of if, if it's for profit or not. Every business incentive they have is to increase, quote, user engagement, good or bad. A public social media platform would not have to worry about increasing engagement because it would only answer to its leaders and to the public, not investors, shareholders, or advertisers. Bull crap. Things that are popular would still, whether they are toxic or not, would still be what's driving. The platform, the whole purpose of social media and platforms of work is because people are on them. It's the collective group mentality that's the issue here, not the structure of the business. I'm getting ahead of myself anyway. Back to the story. The mechanics of how a public social media platform would work have been fairly well figured out by now. It would be a digitally a digital platform that allows people to post and share in a variety of media, pictures, audio, video, text to other people in the network. I personally would structure it a little bit more like Instagram or Tumblr. Of course, he would do want Tumblr because that's where he worked at one point, where I was one of the early employees than Twitter or Facebook. In other words, it should be built on prioritizing sharing things you love over getting attention by simply being loud online. And I'm sorry to tell you, and I don't use Tumblr, but Instagram, the same things do happen. Sorry to tell you, I think this guy is completely wrong. The harder, more interesting part is the corporate structure. Instead of being run, as all of these platforms are, are as profit-making entities, public social media would be grounded in its local community. An organization similar to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting could be formed, funded through a mix of government and foundation grants and member donations. And as with other public media, its board and membership would hold it accountable for not meeting engagement metrics, but for how well it serves the public interest and members of its community. If this was something people wanted right now, it would be there. It would exist. The only way that this type of thing could happen is through the force of government taxing you and I to make it happen. I'm sorry. When's the last time you actually watched PBS or another public channel? For me, I, I it's been a long time. I don't think in this day and age, this is the way to go. My personal opinion. This is not the case today with Facebook, of course, or with any other for-profit social platform that depends on getting as many accounts as possible. A nonprofit model eliminates most of the incentives for bad behavior. The network would be or would not be under pressure from investors to generate growth at all costs. Why would it? Because the there's that unlimited checkbook called the taxpayer pockets. Oh wait, the taxpayer pockets are limited. I think these people forget that eventually you run out of other people's money. Unlike for-profit social media, public social media would be explicitly non-commercial, no brand accounts allowed. In fact, there would be no accounts for any organizations. Well, aren't organizations part of the community? Uh, to me, you know, the local businesses, the churches, whatever, are part of the community. It isn't just the people. This network is for people only. An account on a public media platform would be tied to real-world local identity like a driver's license or library card because there isn't any privacy concerns there. Them having this and storing this because government has done a wonderful job of protecting our information. 
Anonymity online has its real benefits, and a user's name doesn't have to be your real name. The public social media network could keep this information hashed, unscrambled, only when the action against a user is required, which would make it easier to crack down on fake and troll accounts. But if identity theft's a real issue, and my license is out there, your license is out there, a whole bunch of other forms of identity are out there just swimming around on the dark net, I mean, who says it actually is tied to a real person? Of course, the existential question for any new network is, will people use it and how many? You might be tempted to point out the huge footprint of the existing networks and say there's no room for anyone else, but it, this has not proven true. Niche networks like Discord and Mastodon have grown up in the shadow of Facebook and Twitter because they provide users with the things bigger networks do not new, or do not a safer community, a less noisy space, there are certainly pitfalls to this model. For instance, what happens if the hypo- hypothetically a public official is abusive on this page? A publicly supported network could face attempted intimidation by politicians who control its funding, which happens now, but doesn't get too many headlines. But all communities have issues and they work through them together. The key is work of a democracy in establishing those community standards shouldn't be left as they are for any for-profit unaccountable unaccountable company to decide blatantly untrue if a company doesn't provide value that company does not stay in business you can choose not to go to a company that your values don't align with you can choose and we've talked about this on facebook or about facebook on this program before you can choose not to use facebook but we choose not to Uh, And to finish the article out, a few months ago in my hometown, Linwood, Kansas, was hit by a tornado. It is a fairly small one. As tornadoes go afterwards, my mom and many of the town's residents did what people do in these situations. They went on Facebook and posted that they were safe. This is unquestionably a public good. At the same time, for all profit social media platforms, extract a price for our communities would be healthier if this was not the only option. Public social media is an idea that our civic space can can be improved by the creation of a platform organized in the public interest. A thriving digital social network is as vital to the public sphere as a public library, public schools, or even a public water fountain. Let's build one. Yeah, off of your tax-paying money. Off of the money that really... I And I will say this. You notice that he mentioned public good, public good, public good, because that is mentioned in the Constitution. It was one of the things that... The government is there for, for the public good. Now, he's weaving in and out some of these things to try to bolster his argument. And in my head, as I'm going through this, there are a couple of huge flaws in his argument. The first being that, as he describes, is a result of social media, and more specifically for profit social media companies. That the, let me go back here to the very top of the article, is that the spread of propaganda and is toxic to children. The spread of propaganda and is toxic to racial relations. Facebook spreads propaganda and is toxic to democracy itself. You know, these problems he is attributing to social media platforms are not the creation of social media platforms, and again, are not the creation 
of for-profit social media companies. Now, I'm not saying that these things haven't manifested on social media platforms. They're obviously there. But to say that the for-profit social media company structure is the root of these types of problems or the cause of these types of problems is absolutely false. These issues have existed long before social media. Now, the the tool of social media has probably made it, and or not probably, it has made it easier for these ideas to manifest and, and snowball. That I'm not disagreeing with. Another flaw in his argument here is that a government-funded public social media platform will eradicate these problems. I think that's absolutely false. Not only that, there are issues with the government funding anything outside of what it's constitutionally authorized to do. And I mentioned he uses that public good phrase or for the public good phrase to try to anchor in why the government should be doing this. And I'm sorry, I don't think it is constitutionally allowable for the government to be funding any type of media. He wants to talk about propaganda when the government is funding what is going out and they don't like what is being put out there in these media platforms. They can control it. Not only that, they will want to push certain things, certain ideas, certain philosophies, and that could be considered propaganda in of itself. I also take issue to his window that the resistance to regulation is a bad thing. While I can tell you resistance to the federal government or even state or local governments regulating anything is a damn good thing. Once a government decides to enact regulation, it is extremely hard to undo and it should be as difficult if not more difficult to have laws put in place than it is to remove them. In fact, if we don't like a law, it should be extremely easy to remove a law. But we have to do our part to make sure that those things that the government is doing, quote-unquote, on our behalf are the right things. And some of the things that I see out there that people do is they will try to use bits of truth to justify their argument. And even in this case, He's trying to come up with a solution that doesn't really exist. And one of those underlying things is that our four private social media companies are what is causing this to happen. And somehow having four profit social media companies and that they are some big bad monster because they have a board that they report to and somehow that having that board that they're only held accountable to is somehow a bad thing. And that the fact that they're somehow the only people they are accountable to, or the, the companies are only accountable to their boards, is also a fallacy. It's not the only people that they're accountable to. They're accountable to the customers. They are accountable to follow the laws just like you and I as individuals. It's a lot easier for us to have and make the choices with the company than it is with their government because our government can use force. 
Now I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about economics for a few minutes. I am a proud American and I stand 100% behind the Constitution. At the end of the day, our founders knew that good, where goods cross borders, armies do not. They knew that getting in political entanglements with other countries would create a mess, not only politically, but economically. They understood what having free trade with other countries would do not only for our own national security and economic stability, but for those around the world. The price that we as consumers pay as a result of our government getting in not only economic conflicts, but actual conflicts with other countries are a very high price on a lot of things. Whether that is the goods that we pay for or the lives that are lost as a result of the armed conflict. Trump has been very clear and vocal about being America first when it comes to where goods are manufactured. But what happens when the cost to produce a computer, a car, a t-shirt, or whatever else is more expensive because it was made here in the U.S.? Are we better off as a result of those goods being produced inside this country? Your first reaction may be, hell yeah, because of the jobs that stayed here in the U.S. America! Let's think about that for a second, shall we? If the overall cost of production is higher as a result of it being produced here in the U.S., who do you think is going to absorb that higher cost? I can tell you it isn't going to be the company. At the end of the day, you and I as the end consumer will pay for the higher production cost. In this situation, yeah, some or several people may have jobs, but you and I pay that as a price in higher cost of the goods and services that we pay for. I know that was a little redundant and I'm sorry. What do you think happens when costs get too high that customers cannot afford to pay for these goods and services? Do you think the company will be able to continue to employ those people? The answer is no. So let's move on to the story from Fox News about Apple's to uh, Apple's decision to produce the Mac Pro here in the U.S. And at our, or the article is by Nicholas Vega, and it's actually from the New York Post, but reposted on FoxNews.com. It says Apple's insanely expensive desktop computer will be made in the United States, not China. The company announced Monday the $6,000, again, $6,000 Mac Pro will be built at Apple's Austin, Texas plant following the U.S. trade regulators approving 10 requests for tariff exemptions by Apple for computer parts. Quote, the new Mac Pro will include components designed, developed, and manufactured by more than a dozen American companies for distributions to U.S. customers, and quote, Apple stated or said in a statement. The Mac Pro has been assembled at the Austin plant since 2013, but Apple announced early this year that the new computer would be made in China, prompting fur from President Trump, who has been critical of the company's reliance on Chinese factories. Now, my issue here with the Chinese built, it has nothing to do with it being made in China or by Chinese factories, 
more so that it's made in China and the potential national security issues and uh, cybersecurity issues with that, not it actually being manufactured on Chinese soil. Quote, Apple will not be given tariff waivers or relief for Mac Pro's parts that are made in China. End quote. Trump tweeted, make them in the USA, no tariffs. Yeah, but at an insanely or insanely high expensive price. Apple at that time said, quote, like all of our products, the new MacBook Pro is designed and engineered in California, includes components from several countries, including the United States. The Mac Pro is slated for release this fall with an entry level price of $5,999. Man, $6,000? That is a crap ton of money. And I don't know how many of you have that type of money just laying around to go out and purchase on a, a, a computer. Uh, back to the article. It's designed to be the are designed to be paired with the Apple's new $4,999 Pro Display XDR monitor, which is turn or which in turn mounted to are mounted on a $999 Pro stand. So we are looking at almost $11,000 for that combined setup. And actually, in this article, that means Apple's new supercomputer will cost at least twelve thousand before boasting or boosting any of its specs. Apple shares were up 06 percent Monday morning at two hundred nineteen dollars and ten cents. So great! The assembly of this computer is going to happen in the U.S. by U.S. employees making. Uh, who knows how many dollars an hour, my guess, working for Apple, even in a, an assembly line somewhere in some computer manufacturing warehouse, eh, they're probably still making a decent amount of money. And great, they have jobs. And I'm sure there are going to be several thousand people or hundreds of thousands of people potentially that'll go out and, and drop $12,000 for that entire setup. But the point I'm trying to make here is that just because we can do it here, I'm not saying the U.S. folks aren't capable of doing that, but what's the trade-off by having it made here versus somewhere else? Well, as I mentioned before, the trade-off is higher prices. And again, what I can't seem to get my mind around is that at the end of the day, the end consumers are the ones who get lost or completely forgotten about in this discussion. If another country can produce goods at a cheaper and higher quality rate than they can be made and produced and sold here in the U.S., then let it be made in that country where they can do it better than we can. Just like anything else, labor is a finite resource. If our resources of people, employees, can be better spent on other things, producing other things, doing other things, then maybe they should be doing that to where we can then export those goods or services out to other countries. But these tariffs do nothing but harm us as in consumers here in the U.S. and abroad. It also ratchets it up as a are the overall total tensions between us and China. And do we really want any type of conflict with China? I know I don't. I'm not saying the Chinese government are angels by 
any means. They have their issues, both socially, politically, from a cybersecurity standpoint. There is a lot of things that I don't agree with, and I think that the Chinese government is doing very badly. But if I can get my computer a couple hundred or thousand dollars cheaper because it's made over there or somewhere else, that benefits me. That means that money that was going to be tied up in purchasing a more expensive good here in the U.S. or that was made here in the U.S. but instead was made somewhere else can be spent on something else. So again, it's all about the choices. It's all about being able to buy as much as you can with the limited amount of resources that you have. In this case of a $6,000 computer or $12,000 total setup computer, I know I'm not going to be able to go out and tie up that amount of money in a computer. Now, maybe if I had a business where that was making me more money, okay, then it may be worth an investment. The last thing I will say is this. Tariffs are another form of a tax. And this example with... The Apple Mac Pros are just one of the victims of this trade war, economic war, tariff war, whatever you want to call it, with China. All right, guys, that is it for this week's show. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something from it as well. Thanks again to our sponsor, Delta Research, for supporting the show. Again, if you want to join in on the conversation, go to the show's webpage at cybernowpod.com. Visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to get a hold of me directly, you can find me on Twitter at the underscore Polititech or email me at nick at the Polititech.com. Finally, if you think this show is worthy, go to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform to subscribe, rate, review, and please don't forget to share the show. If you guys do all of that, I promise I will be back again to do this thing once more. Until then, have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.